1: When I started, I was very sick with complications from type 2 diabetes. Within six months of starting a ketogenic diet, all of my biomarkers of disease had disappeared. I've lost about 100 pounds. I've completely turned my health around.
0: And this show is a document of our experiences thriving for years in ketosis.
1: Yeah, and reversing diabetes.
0: And hopefully that might help a few people who are curious about this kind of dietary hacking.
1: (laughs) We're not doctors. We don't want to give anyone any medical advice. We're actually a pair of hackers. (laughs) But we are keen to share our own experience. (laughs) That's right. We're really software
0: developers, so we're
1: not afraid of a little technical detail, are we, Carl?
0: No, sir. Mm
1: -hmm. We've done some research into our own deranged metabolisms and the science behind them, and we share studies that we found in the show notes.
0: And you'll probably work out pretty quickly that we're both foodies. Mm -hmm. We love to cook and we love to eat. Yep. In every episode, we both share a keto recipe that, uh...
1: You might like.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So let's start podcast number 129, Keto Fest Down Under, with Jessica Turton. Heard you say... For little. So, Richard, do we have any apologies or corrections from last week's show?
1: Let's see. Last week was 128. That was the Keto Fest show. Uh, yeah. We had a pair of fools on for guests. <laughs> we have. That's right. We had us. <laughs> oh, it was us. <laughs> That's I'm not right. apologizing for us. <laughs>
0: no, no, not said, at all. I
1: think I think it was a good show. So, I think it's all good. But look, if you have any, any questions or any comments or things you disagree with, let us know. You know how to find us.
0: You certainly do. So, let's revisit what a ketogenic diet is. Sure. A ketogenic diet puts you in a state of ketosis where you're Mm -hmm. burning fat for energy rather than glucose. Mm -hmm. And the way we did it is we ate 20 grams of carbs or less per day. Yep. Close to zero as you can get, but green leafy vegetables, some dairy, some eggs, all that kind of stuff. You're going
1: to have incidental carbs because even eggs have got some carbohydrates in them.
0: Yep. As far as protein, uh, that's moderate. Mm-hmm. And we use the one to one and a half grams per kilogram of lean body mass equation.
1: Yeah. For me, I'm about 80 kilograms lean mass. I have between 80 and 120 grams of uh, protein a day.
0: Right. And all of our energy we get from
1: fat. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Either the fat on our plate or the fat on our bodies. Exactly. Yeah, and if you're just starting keto and you want some more advice or you want some more um, uh, detailed information, listen to our Starting Keto Show at start.2keto.com. So, buddy, how was your week? Uh, it's
1: tiring, actually. Uh, so, I, as you probably know, or as our listeners may know, we're working on a keto fest in Australia. And yeah. uh, so I spent uh, most of last week... Uh, doing some photography uh, of the event and signing deals with the venue so we have mm-hmm. the venue is all organized for Saturday the 16th that's a Sunday uh, in Canberra Australia at the national press Club
0: yeah it's awesome
1: so today I went over to the press club and had pork belly for lunch and oh it was so <laughs> good and I went in nice. in back to to chat to the uh, to the chefs, and uh, they actually sent me out an ice cream that was made with parsnip and truffles, but unfortunately, huh. it had uh, it had sugar added to it. And yeah. I, I, you know, I, I had a little taste, like half a teaspoon, just to just to get a feeling for the chefs. Uh, flavor c- combinations are really, it's, it was delicious. I would love to see that with like an allulose or with a, you know, a non-caloric sweetener. Yeah. But I went back and, and had a chat to the chefs and said, look, guys, this is really was delicious, but, uh, you know, we only have 20 grams of uh, carbs a day maximum, and they both went, yeah. wow. <laughs> so, yeah, I had a good week. And before I finish, I just want to mention that there is a UK meetup in Preston on the 18th of August, and we're going to put a link in the show notes. Uh, but you can also find this on the ketogenic forum. That's forums.2keto.com. Uh, you can go to the community slash UK uh, section and uh, you can see details about that. It's on the 18th of August at 1.30 pm at Salita. And uh, you want the guy you want to chat to there is VJ and he's organizing a meetup of keto people.
0: So... Very, very cool.
1: Yeah, have fun. So, how was your week, Carl?
0: Huh? Well, oh, my week was really good. Um, it was my birthday week. Mm. and uh, Happy 51st, okay. huh? <laughs> yeah, thanks. Mm-hmm. I gave myself a present. Um, my wife would say, I asked my wife permission <laughs> to buy myself a present. Okay. And she did. Mm-hmm. It's a, a Traeger smoker slash grill that uses wood pellets. Nice. So... The problem with a lot of grills and, and smokers is precise temperature control, you know? Right, yeah. So what this does is it has a hopper that you fill with wood pellets, and they have to be food-grade wood pellets. Sure. Um, apple, mesquite, hickory, whatever. There's a whole bunch of them, bunch of types of wood that you can get. And then you basically have uh, settings from smoke, which is like at 180 degrees Fahrenheit all the way up to 450 degrees. And you can dial it in. Nice. Now, when it's on the very low level, it's just smoke. Yeah. You know, it's about as cold as it can be, but it's still about 180 Fahrenheit. Right. And then you can turn it up. And when you turn it up uh, past a certain point, there's no smoke
1: because
0: mm-hmm. the wood pellets are burning so quickly and uh, there there's just no time for it.
1: Yeah. 180 Fahrenheit yeah. is about 80, 80 Celsius. So, it's just, you know. Yep. It's uh, it's yep. not not boiling, but yeah.
0: So, I got this originally because I was thinking I might want to cook uh, picanha on it. Right. The, the rump cap steak, which mm-hmm. is my recipe. And uh, uh, you'll have to wait and see how that turned <laughs>
1: out. <laughs> okay. I love it. It's yeah. a cliffhanger.
0: <laughs> it's a cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's, uh, that's about it. I mean, I had a, a great week and uh, a good birthday and- Ate some meat, and uh, I'm going to share that recipe later. Sounds like a good week.
1: Yeah, so let's give away some swag. Yeah, every show we pick a lucky winner at random from the members of the Two Keto Dude Fan Club.
0: Yes, and today we're giving away a treasure trove of stuff from vendors we like, all of which you can find at fanclub.twoketo.com. So, Carl, who's our winner this week? This week's winner is Stacy Moneysmith.
1: Congratulations, Stacy. Yeah, congratulations. Let's tell everyone what Stacy is what.
0: Sure. Well, the first thing we're giving away is a Two Keto Dudes coffee mug that says, Keep Calm and Keto On.
1: Uh, also, a signed copy of Lies My Doctor Told Me by Dr. Ken Berry, online at lies2
0: And a bottle of Stevia Sweet Barbecue sauce, developed by a barbecue restaurant owner who plans to change the restaurant industry forever. Only two carbs per serving, online at steviasweetbbq.com.
1: And a cheese making kit from Wine & Whey. Pam Zorn gave everybody a Keto Festa kit so they can make their own fresh mozzarella. You can get yours online at wineandway.com. That's W-I-N-E-A-N-D-W-H-E-Y.com.
0: And a six-ounce cup of beef bone broth concentrate from Birthright Nutrition. Just add water, heat, stir, sip, and enjoy. Jam-packed with good stuff. More at birthrightnutrition.com.
1: We're also giving away a bottle of Remag Magnesium Solution developed by Dr. Carolyn Dean, along with a copy of her protocol and the Keto and Magnesium Manifesto. Mm. That was presented at KetoFest 2018. You can find that online at magmiracle.com. That's M-A-G-M-I-R-A-C-L-E.com.
0: We're also giving away a big bottle of Fasting Drops from Keto Chow. It's a well-formulated blend of electrolytes. You just drop a little in your water and fasting will be a breeze. Online at fastingdrops.2keto.com.
1: And a bottle of Sated RTD, now, one chocolate, one vanilla, online at sated, S-A-T-E-D slash 2KF hyphen RTD.
0: And from Keto and Company, a sampler six-pack, a bag of brownies, a bag each of four-flavored cauliflower rices, and a bag of flatbread, online at ketoand.co. And if you don't want to wait to win some swag, you can buy all sorts of it online at
1: gear2
0: And that brings us squarely to a little section we call... Mail!
1: No teenagers this week. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> so what you got, Carl? Well, here's a message that was written in the ketogenic forums a few days ago. Mm-hmm. In the newbies section... And this is from Martha. And Martha says, feeling fed up, but I know I can't quit. No other options, but really deflated. Help. And Martha says, I started keto June 24th. Mm -hmm. My A1C was 5.5, but that's after I'd worked hard without knowing keto existed, trying to adjust my diet to remove sugar and starches anyway over the past couple of years. Nice. Due to being told I was pre-diabetic and diagnosed with PCOS two years ago. Mm Mm-hmm. I listen to two keto dudes religiously. G'day, Martha. Yeah. I also devour anything written or recorded by Jason Fung and Megan Ramos. Mm -hmm. I've been doing IF for a few weeks now, uh, fasting for 20 hours, eating one meal a day for four hours with Mm -hmm. my feeding window closing at 6 p.m., but I rarely eat after 5 p.m. Slowly, slowly, I saw my weight come down by another 2.2 pounds. Not a kilo. Yep. Yep. After my initial 5 kilo loss, mm. 11-ish pound loss after starting keto on June 24th, Nice. then plateauing two weeks in. I've done two 36-hour fasts over the last two weeks. When doing one meal a day, I have trouble eating more than 800 to 900 calories in one feed without feeling seriously ill. Mm. And on feast days, I have trouble going over 1,500 calories without feeling like I'm going to throw up. I've never been a big eater. I'm consistently eating 75 to 80% fat, and carbs are rarely over 15 grams a day, Mm -hmm. 1% to 5%. I'm careful with protein. I started doing a 20K bike ride once a week, a Disciple of Richard, (laughs) Yep. and I keep my heart rate in endurance zone or fat burning. I'm moderately active daily anyway, running around after two kids and working with children at work also. Sometimes I have long stints at a desk, but it's balanced out. I felt great on Saturday after losing approximately another three and a half pounds after my 36-hour fast this week. But to my horror, the scale today says I put this weight back on over two days on the weekend, plus more, around five pounds total. Hmm. This is after I finished my 36-hour fast on Friday and a 20K ride on Sunday. All the weight I thought my fast finally helped me lose is back, plus more. This seemed to happen the moment I went back to a sixteen-eight window over the weekend and attempting to feast, still keto, by increasing my intake to over 1,500 on Saturday and Sunday after hearing from Megan Ramos on Two Keto Dudes, the Switching It Up show, yeah, how important it is to feast when not fasting. Sure is. I am so, so deflated. I don't know what more to do. I don't want to give up on this, but it's so frustrating. I had lost almost 6 kilos since starting Keto Lifestyle back in June with starting weight of 91 kilograms. My goal weight is 68 kilograms, so I feel like this is so slow going when I hear others losing 20 pounds in two weeks.
2: Mm.
0: I started doing the 20 and 4 IF for the last few weeks, trying to break the plateau, then did two 36 hours this week and the week before I finally lost one and a half kilos I've been keeping calm and ketoing on, but now all that weight is back again, plus the you can just see she's really getting frustrated here, yeah, so you know the rest of it is uh, that she's just started another thirty six hour fast, and she's thirteen hours in, feeling really so sick of it all, but she says, I feel I have no other options but to but to keep going, I mm-hmm. guess I'm just looking for some hope to bolster me, right, and uh you know the I I don't know what uh, advice you would give her, but the advice that everybody else gave her was seemingly spot on to me, which is, you know, don't look at the scale, throw your scale away. (laughs) And uh, I I get the feeling that she is sort of calorically restricting, number one. Yeah, absolutely she is. Number two, she's exercising, Hmm. which, you know, is going to build muscle mass, which, as we know, is denser than fat.
1: Well, it's it's not only that. She's exercising and that's adding a caloric deficit to uh, to her uh, her caloric balance, so she, mm. so it's making her uh, deficit her calorie restriction even worse. Um, so yeah, here's the thing: we weigh what our bodies choose to weigh, given their homeostasis, and and right. basically they get uh, inputs from from your environment that tells them. Uh, what is what the energy they can expect and when you have a lot of carbohydrates in your diet you derange that so your body sets its homeostasis at a 100 pounds higher you know and so that's really the magic of keto is is allowing your body to rebalance its homeostasis without the derangement of high levels of insulin all the time yeah and so that's that's the trick of of, of keto uh, I you really can't lean in much further than not eating carbs <laughs> you know yeah, yeah okay yeah. fair enough you can fast for 3 days or 5 days or 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 what have you you can do extra exercise you can do an extra 20k bike ride you can reduce the amount of calories that you're eating and those things will help you lose weight in the short term but they don't reset your 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 energy homeostasis of your body that's up to your body to determine given the right. environmental inputs uh, where it's going to be so my advice and really you're in a very similar situation to where julie was when she when we first started you're only about six weeks in so you're only just fat adapted and jules didn't lose a lot of weight in the first six weeks she took about 18 months she she mm. In the end, she lost more weight in kilograms than I lost, uh, in that first 18 months, but I lost all of mine in like the first three, three to five months. And mm. she took a good 18 months because, and she was coming from 95 kilos. Um, Martha's coming from 91 and Jules ended up at 61 and Martha's aiming to get, get to 68. So, you know, you, you're in a similar situation. You just have to be kind to your body. You have to make sure it gets energy. You have to make sure that you're not hungry. Um, and you, you don't have to exercise if you don't feel like exercising. If you want to exercise, great, right. go for it, do it. But you're not going to lose weight faster by doing more exercise. That's not how it works because that's right. exercise yeah. is stress. And if you give your body stress, it's going to save a little bit extra for that rainy day because it's under a bit of stress. So,
0: And that's also going to raise insulin levels, isn't it?
1: Sure, absolutely. I mean, my advice Cortisol. is keep calm and keep on. Uh, really, um, it, it it will. Uh, in most cases, um, uh, once once you are happy and comfortable and really starting to enjoy the lifestyle, the weight seems to flow off. At least that was my experience. That's, right. That's Julie's experience as well. And one yeah. of one of our friends, Karen, Karen gained weight for the first six weeks. And was extremely right. frustrated. And then it was only when she sort of chilled out a bit that all of a sudden the weight started coming off.
0: Yep. So there you go. Just keep calm, keto on. Don't worry about the scale. Just throw it away. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> yeah. It's not helpful. Well, if, if no. you're doing
1: a 20K bike ride, you could be going up or down four kilograms just in water, just in hydration. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you yeah. know, you, the scale is not going to be giving you useful information I'm,
0: I'm afraid so that's uh, that's the mail that i read what do you got today
1: oh I, i've got a long one as well i'm sorry <laughs> uh well uh-huh. this will be a decent one this is a message and it comes from brian and he actually sent this email to to us directly and brian says hi guys i've heard you say that there are dozens of studies that have shown saturated fat is not linked to heart disease how can this be true if 25 percent of the population has at least one genetic e4 allele It's the APOE4, making them more susceptible to heart disease when consuming saturated fat. Wouldn't that large percentage of the population skew the data towards a higher instance of heart disease with the consumption of saturated fat? I'm confused. And I responded to Brian, and basically, uh, I sent him a link to the end of the Zurich conference. And this was, uh, you might Remember, I mentioned it uh, in the podcast with Sarah Halberg, but Mm -hmm. Darius Mossafarian gave a really good presentation on basically giving a full-throated defense of epidemiology, and he's basically said we can only afford to observe a biomarker like, say, blood pressure being associated with cardiovascular disease, and then... Uh, look at an association between a nutrient intake like that of salt being associated with blood pressure and then draw the conclusion that the evidence shows that salt intake increases cardiovascular disease because if salt increases blood pressure and blood pressure going up increases cardiovascular disease risk then you should be able to infer that eating more salt means you have more cardiovascular disease and the next presenter, Salim Yusuf, actually contradicted that because he actually did a study into looking into how much salt people ate and how much cardiovascular disease they had. And in fact, in some cases, the, the heart disease, there was no association. And people who ate more salt had less stroke. So, you know, some of the risk went down. So and he made the point that you can't really make the association between nutrient, biomarker, and disease like that. Mm. Um, And uh, my my question at the time to both of them was to address the elephant in the room, and that is saturated fat. Um, Dr. Yusuf's study actually showed that there was no association between saturated fat and cardiovascular disease risk. But Dr. Mozafarian and and Dr. Willett and a lot of other people have have made the the link between uh, an increase in saturated fat causes an increase in LDL and an increase in LDL um, has a, a very weak association with an increase in cardiovascular disease and so they've made the assumption that increasing sa- saturated fat increases cardiovascular disease. but you know, Dr. Yusuf found that there was absolutely no association between the two. Mm. Um, but of course you know our dietary guidelines still warn us to reduce all saturated fat intake because it increases the risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, drilling into this, what has been shown is that middle aged men who have cardiovascular disease have a slightly elevated LDLC. That is, cholesterol carried by LDL particles yeah. is slightly elevated. It's not by a great amount. If you have two populations and one group has high LDLC and group two has normal LDLC, and you wait to see who gets cardiovascular disease, the number from group one, which is the group that has uh, a high LDLC, uh, their number is about 8% higher people getting cardiovascular disease than the number in Group 1. It's small, but it's significant. Uh, I don't know the actual underlying data um, because it's not in the the Framingham study that I have at hand, but the difference might be similar to the difference between 12 people from 1,000 in Group A in in the years that that they were tracked having cardiovascular disease Mm. and 11 people from Group B, you know. 12 to 11 the difference is 8% but you know in in if 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 the entire population is in a thousand then you know that's a very small weak association yeah yeah The other thing that's been shown is that if you increase intake of saturated fat in the diet, then that increases the number of LDL particles. And that's a much larger association. The number in group one who eats a lot of saturated fat who have high LDL is 300% higher than the number in group two. That's a threefold increase. Okay, so that's a much larger effect. And you can say, you know, something like 21 people from, uh, from the thousand in group A having more LDL particles and seven in the 1,000 people from Group B having less LDL particles, having heart attacks. But again, I don't know the absolute numbers, but the effect is stronger because it's a threefold effect. And, you know, you can say that there is a causal relationship between eating saturated fat and having more LDL particles. Um, And in the 70s, we saw all of that and we said, right, well, we need to lower saturated fat to lower cardiovascular disease. And then every study we attempted to, to, to test that hypothesis refused to give us the result that we expected. You know, a majority of experts are still holding out for the study that will finally show them to to have been correct all along. Uh, Yeah, yeah. So anyway, let's go over the logic. Some people who eat more saturated fat get more LDL particles, and some people with more LDL particles usually have more LDL cholesterol. And some people with higher LDL get more cardiovascular disease than average. Um, to start off with we're talking about really small effects linking ldlc with cardiovascular disease risk unless the effect is over 200% over two-fold increase you really can't say that high ldlc causes cardiovascular disease right right we can't tell if cardiovascular disease causes high ldlc or high ldl causes cardiovascular disease, or both are caused by a third uh, factor. Um, you can probably, however, say that the increased saturated fat intake causes some increased LDL particle numbers. That, that's a 300% mm. association. So that's sufficient to in- infer causation from the effect size.
0: Um, right. But just because it increases LDL doesn't mean that it increases your chances of heart disease because there isn't a clear correlation there.
1: Well, we don't even know if it's the same LDL. Well, in fact, we actually know that it's not the same LDL. because um, that
0: That's right. You
1: know, yeah. You know, that, that uh, Ronald Krauss has actually shown this. It's a small, dense LDL that's associated with cardiovascular disease, and it's right. the large buoyant that's associated with eating saturated fat. That's why there's no, no underlying association. But anyway, the, yeah. the, the Brian's question was not really about cardiovascular disease. He, he inferred that the problem with saturated fat with his ApoE status. This is his genetic alleles that make his ApoE particles.
0: Mm. So, ApoE, what is that? What does that stand for? Well, it's
1: one of the alleles that we use to make uh, a, a particle called ApoE, uh, and there are three common variants. We can have E two, E three, and E four. And most people have E three, like something like seventy percent of all people have E three. And we get one from mum and one from dad, so we have two. So I, for mm-hmm. example, I'm E three E three. I got an E three from mum and an E three from dad. That's the generic. That's the most common form of of, of ApoE particle. Okay. But there's a type of particle called APOE4. And that's much rarer and people who have an APOE4, they're not at risk from cardiovascular disease, they're at risk for Alzheimer's disease. And this is why it's critical. Ah. And people who have one E3 and one E4, so they have one E3 like me, but they have the 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 higher risk one, they're at a threefold greater risk of Alzheimer's disease than people who have two E3s. And people who have two E4s are a 15 times greater risk. So, you know, you can test yourself, and and Brian has done this. He has an E3 and an E4, so he has a threefold greater risk of Alzheimer's disease than I have Hmm. with my E3, E3.
0: But it's also important to say that, and you might be getting around to this, that just because you have a genetic predisposition towards something doesn't mean that's your fate.
1: Right. This is the argument about genotype and phenotype. Genotype says this is the genes that you have. Phenotype is it says this is how you gotta express those genes. And in the case mm. of people who eat a high carbohydrate diet, if they are more have a higher risk uh, for Alzheimer's disease based on their ApoE status. Th- they're more likely to have Alzheimer's. But people who have That's a right, low-carbohydrate yeah. diet don't have that risk. So, you know, if you have E4, you really want to be eating a low-carbohydrate diet because that flatlines right. all of your Alzheimer's risks. So, um, you yep. know, yeah, and there's there's good news for E4 carriers is that E4 also confers some advantage to immune function. Um, you know, so, so you know, you're actually in a very good position if you have E4 uh, as long as you know not to eat carbs. <laughs>
0: hmm. Yeah, so, I guess yeah. so.
1: Yeah, but to sum up, the you know, the evidence has failed to show a saturated fat is a risk to cardiovascular disease. There may be some risk of eating saturated fat if you have an E4, E4 and eat a high-carb diet. Um, I really don't know if that is true for people eating ketogenically.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. You know, I'm really glad that one of us is smart enough to explain that. Oh, Thank you. I'm
1: not sure that I did fully explain it. But look, if you have any questions, Brian, you know where we are.
0: All right, well, that brings us to the content part mm-hmm. of this show. Yeah. Enough chit-chat. Let's actually hear an excellent interview that you, Richard, did with Jessica Turton.
1: Yeah, that's that's right. I did that in Threadbow uh, uh, two weeks ago. Um, we had a low-carb conference with Low Carb Down Under in, in Threadbow, and Jessica Turton has actually been on our show before. I interviewed her last time in Perth, and she's a scientist and a dietitian. And what's yeah. more, she's a dietitian who is using science to teach other dietitians how they can get around the Dietitian's Association of Australia dietary guidelines to prescribe ketogenic and low-carb diets to people who have type
0: 2 diabetes. Yeah, she is our kind of dietitian. She sure is. Yeah. All right, let's roll that recording.
1: Okay, uh, I'm in low-carb thread, Beau. This is a conference at a ski resort, uh, which is unusual for low-carb people. No, it's not really. <laughs> we do it all the time because a lot of us are skiers. So this conference is at Low-Carb Threadbow, which is in the Australian Alps. And uh, you, the noise in the background will be the sound of a thriving resort on powder day because it's actually snowing powder in Australia. So I'm here with Jessica Turton. We, we spoke to Jess uh, a couple of months ago in at Low-Carb Perth. Uh, Jessica, uh, say hello to everyone.
3: Hello, everybody. <laughs> and hello, Richard. Thanks yeah, for having me. Are you welcome.
1: So tell me, you did a presentation at Perth and we didn't get the mm. audio, so we did redid the presentation today and Low Carb Down Under will be publishing that video. Yeah. Um, but tell us a little bit about your presentation in Perth. That was mm. on a new paper you just Published.
3: Yeah, so the the one that I did um, in Perth, um, the when I did the presentation the day before, actually we were told that our systematic review that we did for low carbohydrate diets on type one diabetes mm. was going to be published. So I couldn't actually talk about that as much as I wanted to. So it was almost good in a way that it didn't get recorded. So yeah. I had the opportunity to do the talk again here at um, Threadbo, and I was able to talk about all the like a few really high quality recent systematic reviews that have been mm-hmm. done, um, looking at low-carbohydrate diets for obesity, mm-hmm. for type 2 diabetes, for cardiovascular disease risk, and right. also my one for type 1 diabetes, and present the evidence on low-carb for these clinical conditions, and really present this as an evidence-based approach. Right. And so, I'm really excited for that to, to get out there for yeah. other practitioners as yeah.
1: well. Well, certainly for other dieticians. It's very important, uh, really, for dietetics, the practice in evidence-based Uh, approach is, Mm. is, like, critical to dietitians. So it's very important to to put the evidence for a low-carb diet if there is any evidence, and Mm. you're able to collect quite a a lot of evidence for that. Um, So I I guess the first thing is um, have you – have you heard back from other dietitians who've seen your work?
3: About my systematic review. So, basically, the only thing I've heard in terms of other dietitians referring to my systematic review is that, um, not in the light I would have expected it to be referred to, but Uh one dietitian, (laughs) and we won't name names because we don't do that here, Um, but one dietitian actually referenced my paper during a um, conference to other dietitians and was like, see, there's no evidence for low carbohydrate diets and type 1 diabetes. You could and it. she took <laughs> that's <my> the opposite <laughs> of your That's the opposite
1: of your conclusion. Well,
3: her, her conclusion from my conclusion just didn't make any sense. So basically mm. my conclusion has a point in there that says the evidence is inconclusive, and that's true because Mm. you can't just get a a few little papers together and be like, right, this is what we need to do for the whole population. Mm. But inconclusive does not mean ineffective, and she was sort of using it and going, see, it's ineffective, we should Mm. not be using low-carb diets for type 1, but my whole review, all she needed to do was look at the results table yeah. and see that we included nine studies. No, they weren't amazing studies, but they were nine studies. There's
1: not there's not a lot of there's amazing RCTs in type one diabetics. Well, is there?
3: no, there's no evidence for the high carb approach. So right. this is pretty much like you know what we're going for the low carb approach. And there's you know nine studies is okay, mm. and. Every single one of those studies had at least one significant difference, um, in an outcome after the low carb diet in right. an, in a positive direction. Yeah. So there were no studies that showed any negative side effects, mm-hmm. um, or any negative results. And so I don't see how that would mean ineffective? Like, I mean, we had one trial in there um, that had a drop of HbA1c. It was from 9.7 to like 7.2 right. or something yeah. in like five months.
1: That's incredible. And yeah. so, how
3: can you say that it's just blanket ineffective?
1: I think the, the uh, another uh, conclusion that you could take from that study is that there, there are no – uh studies that show it's not effective. Correct. I mean that that really is, mm. is I mean there are there's not a lot of studies, but every yes. single one that you were able to find in your systematic mm. review showed f, f, Some efficiency.
3: sort of effect, yeah. 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 And the problem is these days is um particularly with systematic reviews and this whole evidence based practice approach mm. I believe evidence based practice is so important but I think people are just not reviewing the evidence properly and I believe that, you know, this example that I used before where this person's going straight to my conclusions and going, ha-ha, see, Hmm. I think what practitioners really need to do is, you know, use a systematic review as a tool to look at individual studies and to find individual studies. Hmm. So, I don't think we should necessarily be relying on systematic reviews and never looking at individual studies. As a conclusion.
1: We need to use that as a a guideline, a map, if you will, to... Interesting studies. Yeah, to, so it's like a yeah. summary
3: of the evidence, mm. but it's it's it shouldn't be the be all and end all because mm. I mean the example I use is type two diabetes. Um and we've recently had this amazing trial from Verda Health right, um yeah. looking at type two diabetes and it showed amazing results. Mm. But that wasn't a randomised controlled trial, so systematic reviews aren't going to include the Verda Health trial. Of course. And if we're only solely looking at systematic reviews of randomised controlled trials, we're going to lose really good evidence mm. like the Verda Health yeah. study, which showed a sixty percent reversal in type two diabetes. Yeah, and it was, didn't the it? outcomes
1: were remarkable. They sh- not something mm. like ninety four percent of people who came into the study on insulin mm. uh, were able to re- get off their insulin entirely of types of diabetics yeah. So, you know, that, that's remarkable. And, and there, it had like an 87% compliance. Oh, and amazing. They, you know, amazing. And the, point that, the point that I was making to Sarah Halberg was that even the eat all the chocolate you want diet doesn't have an 87% <laughs> compliance because Cadbury's in or, or Tasmania. eat all the
3: meat you want diet. That's right. <laughs> we yeah. tried well, to well, do we, that, we last tried that last <laughs> night. We had it. We went to
1: uh, a churis in uh, in Threadbow and both Jessica and I have a, a little bit of a meat coma right now.
3: <laughs> <laughs> but we love it. We're we happy do. about we that. Do. But yeah.
1: I mean, 87% compliance for, mm-hmm. for, 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 a, for a, a complicated diet
2: mm-hmm. but
1: one that re- reverses diabetes and is provably able yes. to reverse diabetes. It was a controlled trial because they had a control group it wasn't randomised but the pe- apparently the pe- one of their problems Sarah Halberg said one of the problems was that people who were on the control arm because it was all happening in one town people on the control arm were finding out about the people on the intervention arm having <laughs> such success and they were jumping ship and that they, makes they, were, sense. they were watching what yeah. the people on the intervention arm ate, um, ate mm. and following them so that was <laughs> that was uh, one of the unfortunate outcomes but it still mm. was a controlled trial it was a
2: clinical was. trial yeah. yeah
3: it was a clinical trial and it was a very very important trial I think and it was one that a lot of practitioners and I think dieticians are looking at going oh maybe this low carb thing isn't so bad right and so I think that's the key so part of my research going forward and my Mm. practice as a dietitian, is to try and see if we can improve the translational capacity of the systematic um, well all the evidence on low carb diets that's already available but also the new trials coming through so Mm. there's no point me going going off and doing a PhD and um, doing a primary clinical trial looking at low-carb diets for type 1 if no dietitian is ever going to look at it or care about it. Sure. So, I need to sort of look at both angles and I need to go, okay, yes, we need the evidence but Mm. we also need to help that evidence translate into practice.
1: So, in terms of translatable, you want to put together a protocol that that dietitians can use for… For a ketogenic uh, or low carb diet. Is yes, that, that really- would
3: be the end goal—an evidence-based protocol—and um, that would be a collaboration with some other PhD mm-hmm. students as well. Mm. Um, but that would be part of my PhD project and it is planned at the moment. It is planned to be um, a protocol that anyone can look at. So, whether it's a dietitian, a doctor or just a fellow researcher who wants yeah. to do an intervention um, on low-carb diets and they can say, okay, well, what population do I have? You know, um, what education do I need to do? How strict do we need to go on carbohydrates? You know, what other things are involved? Because it's not all about carbohydrates. No, it's about no. fat quality. It's yep. about other things too. And so we want to have, um, like a protocol based on all the scientific literature we have at the moment. Mm. So to get to that protocol is going to be a lot of work. We're not just going to sit down tomorrow and write one. Um, but we plan to do multiple systematic reviews. Mm So, I've already done the systematic review for type 1 diabetes, and I did it in a way where I included all study designs, and I was very, very inclusive. So, it was basically looking at um, the results before the low-carb diet and the results after the Mm low-carb diet. And I want to do that again with type 2 diabetes, with obesity, and with cancer. Those reviews have already been done. They've only been done for randomized control trials. So, all they're ever doing is comparing a low-carb diet with a high-carb diet, Mm. which is also useful. I'm yeah. not saying that's very no. useful. No, but,
1: th- but there are there exist studies that do that on mm. the type two side of things. You, there wasn't anything on type one. There wasn't mm. any randomized controlled trial that you could include in your yes. systematic review. Well, there that were two, showed- but
3: they weren't very good. <laughs> yeah. Okay,
1: but but I mean that's not enough to be able to do no. a systematic review. So, not a meta-analysis, no. But, no. but by pulling in all of these other studies, mm. some of them were n of ones. I mean, mm. uh, one of them was um, Dr. Richard Bernstein's. Personal n of one study that yes. he that he published, and yes. so that was included. Mm. Um, and so, uh, you know, normally, you know, traditionally, we're told to 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 ignore the anecdote, mm. ignore the n of ones because it's mm. because it, they're easily confounded. They're, there's lots of reasons why, mm. but when that's the only real evidence, yes. you know, that shows at least that one person it worked for, and now you now now the question is how did it how did it work? did it, did it really work? How do you know that? You test it. So exactly. that's the So that's really the next stage after your first paper. The next stage is for some research uh, lab to pick it up and say, we need to do a randomised controlled trial
2: yeah, looking
1: at these things. And I, and I think soon after your, you publish your paper... There was a trial done by, or actually, it was a, it was a, a retrospective review done by David Ludwig yes. on the Type One Grit community.
3: Yeah. So he he surveyed the Type One Grit community, which is basically a supportive community of people on Facebook who are mm. following the Dr. Richard Bernstein approach, which is a low carbohydrate diet for Type yeah. One diabetes management. And this group is fantastic. Mm, so I absolutely. love you know watching this group on Facebook mm-hmm. because they provide each other with such support mm. and no one's judging each other and um, you know they're they're coming in with their stories their personal stories about having type 1 or their child having type 1 Mm. and they're desperate for answers and they're coming to this Facebook group after seeing all their primary health healthcare practitioners and going no one's helping me, no one's supporting me or they've heard about the low carb diet and they want to use it but they can't get that support still and so we've got thousands of people in this group Mm. and their type 1 grit study showed they had very very tight control, very very good control of their Phenomenal, blood sugars. Phenomenal, yeah. Well, that was the that was word used. that was used. Yeah. And we just don't really see that with mm. type 1 diabetes. Mm. I think the data at the moment is showing that about 84% of people with type 1 diabetes have an HbA1c over 7%. Wow. And the type 1 gritters had… 84%. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, that might be slightly old mm. data now, but mm. it's still, I think, about 2014. Sure. Um, but people in the Taiwan gr- group, they were under 6%, weren't mm. they, mostly? Yeah. Um, which is almost normal blood sugar control. A lot
1: of them are 4.8 to 5.2 right? Exactly. Which is normal. I yeah. mean, that's a normal range. Yeah. So, yeah.
3: And I think that sort of research is remarkable. Mm. Um, but when we look at evidence-based practice and health practitioners, a lot of people would look at that and be like, oh, you know, that. That's not proper research. That's, That's just not some proper people science. In a Facebook group. <laughs> That's just people in yeah. a Facebook group. That's not controlled. And to an extent, I get that, but right. also to an extent, I feel like, well, we can't just ignore that. No, we can't ignore it. I mean, and this, just pretend this is it a, didn't happen.
1: No, well, uh, David Ludwig is a, a professor of endocrinology and nutrition. Um, he's the ideal person to, to, to take both of those, um, mm. b- to bridge both of those worlds, um, from Harvard. I mean, he's, he's mm. not nobody and, I know you know, him. and Boston Children's College. And he is the ideal person to do that. He went back to the physicians of these type one grit um uh participants and got their uh, actual lab data so it's not like that lab data has has passed through several hands and is no. anecdotal it's yeah. going back to their actual lab results and so he knew that and in a few cases i think he actually had the HbA1c data from before the invention.
3: So, he had some longitudinal data in there, which is really exciting because I can include that in my next systematic review. So, as Mm. part of my PhD, I will be doing an update on Mm -hmm. my type 1 diabetes systematic review, which is cool because I feel like now with the type 1 GRIT study and my review being published, we have a lot more people and researchers out there going, hmm, you know, maybe we should do more research in this Mm. area, Um, which is exactly what I wanted the review to sort of... um, um... Help, help, you know, help happen is more research happening into this area because, you know, I'm not going to sit back and be like, oh, yes, low carb diets are the be all and end all for type 1 diabetes because I genuinely think we do need more research and we need to know, okay, well, how, how strict should they be carbohydrate restricting Mm -hmm. if it is effective? Yeah.
1: How low carb? Mm, How low carb do they need to go? The point you made in your presentation yesterday is that low carb ranges from anything below 45% of energy, energy intake to, you know, five to To 10 grams a day. And that's a big range.
3: It's a massive range. And so many different diets can be constructed within that low carb paradigm. Mm. And so basically, what I was saying in my presentation is that in the scientific literature, there is no sort of strict definition of low carb diet. So if you do a search for low carb diets, you could get anything below 45% total energy. Mm. So you could get a low carb diet that's 44% total energy intake (laughs) as carbohydrate. And they're like, look at our low carb diet. And so, um, when Kieran and I were doing our systematic review, we were sort of saying, this we is need Kieran to, Rooney from Kieran the University Rooney for yeah, yeah, sorry. I mm-hmm. was saying, we d- actually do need to still capture those studies because mm. it would be interesting to see, um, how different levels of carbohydrate restriction affect people's results. Yeah. Um, you know, so some previous work, um, has shown that, um, for type two diabetes or metabolic syndrome, just restricting by, you know, if you restrict to 130 grams of carbs per day, that actually doesn't get you Any results, potentially, if you're, depending on what you're looking at, maybe, um, um, weight, for example. Sure.
1: As a as, as, a, as a as a proxy or a, you know, yeah, a, a yeah. biomarker for type 2 diabetes remi- remission, weight Correct. loss can be considered, you know.
3: Yeah, yeah. But if you then push those same cohort of people down to a 50 gram of carbohydrate intake per day or a 20 gram of carbohydrate intake, you may see vastly different results. Yes. Um. And so we thought, you know, we can't have these studies out there being like, oh, look how bad low-carb diets are. Right. Um, well, <laughs>
1: sure, if they're 44 If they're percent.
3: 44% total <laughs> energy. So we're like, we need to include them and we need to, talk about them and we need to give them a label. Mm. So, if there was any diet between 26% total energy intake and 45% total energy intake from carbohydrate, we called them false low-carb diet studies.
2: Excellent.
3: Yeah. Um, but I think it was exciting to include them actually mm. in our review because some of them actually showed... Results. Yeah, yeah. So there was one there that um, reduced carbohydrate to 150 grams per day, roughly, mm-hmm. and they were able to drop HbA1c by, by almost two percent.
1: Right. So two percentage points. So yeah, yeah. Two percentage
3: nice. points. So mm-hmm. yes, we don't know. Okay, for type one diabetes, is 20 grams per day the be all and end all? Is 50 grams per day the be mm-hmm. all and end all? And that's why we need more research to confirm. Yes. Um, and I think this brings us back to the whole role of dietitians. Mm. And I think dietitians are very scared of low carb um, because they think that low carb means no carb.
2: Yes. And
3: that is certainly not the case. Mm. And that's why I really hope we get more and more dietitians at these conferences mm. because they'll get to meet people that are actually living this way and doing this um, and thriving, mm. but also be able to learn how to evaluate the literature a little yeah. bit better. Because in a lot of these studies I was looking at, I mean, they're very, very healthy, lots of vegetables. I mean, lots, a lot of variety mm. in these interventions that are low carb. Yeah. And I just think… A
1: dietitian wouldn't consider a lot of these diets to be a, quote-unquote, a priori bad diet.
3: No, exactly. Full so of leafy
1: greens and full exactly. of healthy fats. You know? The
3: fact that we're labelling them low-carb or we're labelling them ketogenic, I think is what's scaring some dietitians away. Right. Interesting. I think if the dietitians actually saw what people were eating in a day, mm-hmm. they'd be like, oh, that's fantastic, that's yeah. great. Yeah. But it's the, all this labelling that's going on that, maybe is driving them away i don't know mm.
1: so your advice to dietitians who are listening to this um is is really to to look at the 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 nutritional Content of low carb diets.
3: Yeah, so if you're looking at a, um, a primary intervention study, for example, mm-hmm. or a systematic review, go to the primary intervention study, go to the methods section, and look at what they have actually recommending their participants to eat, right. and look at how the low carbohydrate diet is being formulated. Mm. And yes, if they're giving them these awful fake food shakes, then mm-hmm. you know that that may not be something you'll ever recommend, and that's fine. Right. Um, but if they're giving them a diet that includes a a lot of variety, a lot of balance, and they're looking at micronutrient adequacy as well, yeah. then that's something that I think all dieticians would agree, okay, this is completely safe mm. and it's effective. Mm. Um, and we know that there was a recent paper by Rebecca Johnson, I think Karen Zinn yes. and Amy Rush yes. published showing that, yes, you can create a low-carbohydrate diet that meets all the nutrient targets, so mm-hmm. all the recommended daily intakes yeah. for the main micronutrients. Nutrient dense
1: foods, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: And I think that's a big thing that um dieticians are concerned about. So, we get taught a quick and easy way to make sure that an individual is meeting their micronutrient intake mm-hmm. is to compare their current food intake with the food groups. Right. So, for example, if someone isn't eating any dairy, you mm-hmm. can really quickly, in five minutes or in five seconds, assume that they're low in calcium. Okay. So, that it was just a really quick way for dieticians mm-hmm. to be like, okay, let's help people get their major mm. mu- micronutrients. And I think it's actually a cool system, mm. um, but it's um, designed for a high-carbohydrate diet. Right. So, then, you know, if they're well, not eating… so many eating,
1: things are designed for a hu- exactly, high-carbohydrate diet. Exactly, exactly. All of our nutrient requirements, for example, vitamin C, um, vitamin C competes with glucose to get into cells. And so, when you you have a diet that is high in glucose like a like a you know 60% of your energy is coming from carbohydrates you've got a lot of glucose in your blood system you can't get much vitamin C into mm. your cells so you have to have more vitamin C and so all of these things are, are you know our assumptions about how much vitamin C a person needs mm, change true. when they when they go low carb and, and a dietitian might look at a low carb diet and think oh there's no vitamin C in it how can if they can't eat fruit how can this person mm. um, not get scurvy and the simple fact of it is that that capsicums have more vitamin C in them than oranges and have very little glucose.
3: Meat has vitamin C in it too, I've right.
1: learned. Yeah, well, especially <laughs> raw, raw, raw liver. Mm. If, you can, if you can tolerate raw yeah. liver, it's absolutely chock-packed because that's where we store our vitamin C, you know. If so. you can
3: tolerate, you're like, I hate
1: liver. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Exactly. No, you're right. And that's the thing. I think if we, and this is part of my goal in my PhD, mm. when I say I'm taught, thinking about a protocol to help other people do low-carb diets, it's kind of like we need these food groups, this sort of system mm. to help people analyze or help the dieticians analyze people's low-carb diets. Right. Um, I think there's just a lack of training and a lack of awareness in this low-carb diet realm. And I think practitioners might just be a little bit afraid. So, they, you know, if their patient comes in and they're on a low-carb diet, The way that that dietitian safely knows how to manage that person is a high carb diet. Yes. So that's why they're not going to be supportive of the low carb diet. Mm. And I think we, as a a community that sort of are aware and um, understand low carbohydrate diets, Mm. need to help those practitioners who who want help to support their patients. Yeah. Um, And I think you know part of. My goals in life as a health (laughs) practitioner is to really spread the evidence and bring the evidence to the surface. So, number one, health practitioners aren't scared to use low-carbohydrate diets, but also two actually help them in doing have a low carbohydrate tools. diet have yeah. tools because mm. we know that education is super important mm. so you can't just say to joe blow down the street and just be like oh reduce your carbs to 20 grams per day all right goodbye mm. like yeah. you need to give this person education you need to be give them constant support mm. um and they may need micronutrient supplementation they may need specific focus on certain foods they may, may need their bloods analysed every three months to, right. to ensure everything else is functioning optimally mm. um, so carbohydrates aren't everything mm. there's so much involved Um, and I think with dietitians, um, wanting to learn more about this, there are resources out there Mm -hmm. and I think low carb down under are putting out fantastic resources that I think are like, you couldn't really get any more evidence based than that because the speakers that they're having on their, um, YouTube channel are either scientists or they're either academics, um. Or they're practitioners. So they've been working in the field or they're individuals who have been affected by these conditions right. that we as health practitioners are trying to manage. Mm. And so
1: that's me. That's Listeners, you. That's, that's, me. Me. that's you. I'm part two diabetic and, you know, <laughs> re- reverse my own diabetes and then, and then, uh, and then realized that there are other diabetics out there who are in trouble who mm. didn't have access to the same information I did. And so I just went, I just went live and just started publicizing it. So yesterday in your presentation, you mentioned the Australian dietary guidelines are specific to healthy people. Mm. And you gave an interesting technique that a dietitian could mm. use to apply the Australian dietary guidelines or to, uh, I- in the case of somebody who is metabolically damaged, yes. choose to, to divert slightly from the guidelines to a, to an intervention that has mm. a better chance of helping them. Mm. So, so, so. Talk a little bit about that as a technique for dietitians to work within the structure, but also to be able to to fine tune uh, the intervention for Mm. a, a customer.
3: Yeah, so you're right. So, the Australian Dietary Guidelines were never tested on people with medical conditions. So, I think we spoke about this in our last interview. Mm. Um, you know, if you had any risk factors for disease or if you had any disease, you would just be kicked out of the studies that um, they used to um, support the evidence for the dietary guidelines. So, basically, as a dietitian, um, we're actually trained in something called medical nutrition therapy. Okay. And so, you know, we go to uni for five years and I think a lot of people don't even know what dietitians do. Mm. I know a few doctors that I even work with sort of just come up to me every now and then like, what do dietitians do? Mm. And it's interesting that people don't know. And I think people do just assume we give out the Australian dietary guidelines to every single person. And I would hate to think that dietitians are doing that because we are trained in so much more than that. Mm. So, basically what I said in the presentation, um, I went through an example of what medical nutrition therapy is and how um, the sort of assessment you would formulate to then um, create an intervention that's going to be effective for that patient. Um, so, basically what I do, the f- whole first part of a consult is information gathering. Mm. So, you would collect information on their medical conditions, so their past and previous and I mean, um, active and previous medical conditions. Yes. Um, and people have lots of medical mm. conditions. Sure. Lots. Mm-hmm. Um, you would also look at family history as well, because that's super important, especially mm. for younger people right. to try and work out, you know, are they, have they got insulin resistance mm-hmm. in the family type 2 diabetes mm-hmm. in the family cardiovascular disease autoimmune conditions like you need to work those things out mm-hmm. too um, you also ask about social circumstances so their stress levels at work mm. are they sleeping well sure. um, you know what is their idea of sleeping well because mm. we know that poor sleep is going to increase your risk of high glucose and insulin resistance yeah. um, we also ask if they can cook because mm. that's important too like who do they live with mm. are these people going to be supportive um we also look at their exercise, um, we look at biochemistry, so HDL cholesterol, mm-hmm. HbA1c, <coughs> insulin, all of those types of things. Um, we ask about signs and symptoms of micronutrient deficiencies, mm. so energy levels, muscle cramping, all of those other types of things which might indicate to us, ooh, maybe they need a bit more B12 or maybe yeah. they need a bit more sodium or something sure. like that, um, and so on and so forth. So, my consults are usually like an hour long mm. at the beginning because you really have to collect all this information. And then basically, all of that information funnels into these, um, a set of nutrition diagnoses. Mm. So it's basically the individual's main nutrition related problems. So, you might come up with one, you might come up with three, you might come up with five or ten. So, this person, based on everything they've told you, you sort of put together the dots and go, okay, what are the main nutrition-related problems? Mm. And then what you do is you talk to the patient and together with the patient, you prioritize which ones they want to work on first. So, it's it's basically, if if I give an example… If we had someone come in and, um, you know, they were having progressive weight gain around their midsection, they had a family history of type 2 diabetes, yep. um, let's say they had high blood pressure, um, high stressful job, mm-hmm. and they were showing all these signs of insulin resistance and their personal goal was to lose weight, mm. then one of the main nutrition-related problems after looking at their dietary intake and their supplements and all those things as well might be excessive carbohydrate intake. Yes. And if the person really wants to lose weight and you talk to them about the effect of carbohydrates on weight and insulin and all those types of things, Mm -hmm. you and the patient might go, right, we're going to prioritize that as number one. Yeah. So, really, the most important thing for that person going forward for the next couple of weeks is Mm -hmm. reducing carbohydrate. Mm. And reducing carbohydrate is something you would still work out with them. How far do you want to reduce? You Mm. know, do you want to get results quickly or do you want to just go slow? Like, all of these things you need to talk to the patient with yeah. because you're not holding their hand and, like, picking things out of the fridge for them at They've home. Do They've got to yeah, do it. exactly.
1: That's so you, the thing. You, they mm, do all the hard work. <laughs> yeah.
3: Exactly. So, if you just talk to them about mm. it, you'll find, oh, you know, they, they want to do this or they don't mm. want to do this. And sometimes people don't want to reduce carbohydrate straight away, even mm. off the education you give them. Mm. And there's always other things. So, another um, example – from the example I just gave, Mm. if this person has high stress levels, Mm. something I would look at then is magnesium intake, Um, because sometimes poor stress management can be a reflection of inadequate magnesium intake, and then um, inadequate magnesium intake can cause more stress in that person's life, so it's a flow-on effect. So, I believe that to be very, very important too, Mm -hmm. and things like vitamin B12, iron, we look at all of those things. Um, And basically, that helps us to formulate the intervention. So, now Mm -hmm. we've got an intervention we're not labeling as anything. Mm. We're just going, this intervention um, is is based on this person's main nutrition-related problems, and we've formulated this personalized intervention together. So, myself and the patient have spoken about this. We're going to write a letter to the doctor. Everyone's involved. Everyone's happy. Wonderful, yeah. And so, what you do then is you see that person every month or every couple of weeks and you know every now and then you get their doctors to run some blood tests and you take their weight you take their waist circumference you ask them how they're feeling are Mm. they enjoying it are they doing the diet do they need help and then all of those things tell you is the intervention you gave to that patient Mm. effective is it working or is it not working if it's not working you change your approach or you Mm. prioritize something else and you keep tweaking and tweaking until it works. Sounds
1: like a great process. I want to work with a dietitian. It's an
3: amazing <laughs> process. <laughs> this is why I think dietitians are so important. Yeah, I agree. And they're so important in this. Um, the, they should be so important in the delivery of low carbohydrate diets because um, they get an hour with their patients. Doctors mm. don't get an hour with their Absolutely patients. Not. So even especially if you
1: not had, to talk about diet.
3: No. So even if you had a fantastic doctor who could mm. do this, they just don't have the time and. I, I believe this process of medical nutrition therapy is key as mm. well because I don't think everyone should be given the same blanket low-carb diet either. Oh, I honestly. think we all need our individual low-carb diets mm. um, and... I mean, like for
1: those who need a low carb diet, for there those may who people, need it, may, see, yes, it's quite possible for people to reverse diabetes on a high carbohydrate diet. I mm. mean, the rice, the Kempner rice diet was a, was that it, mm. it, was, it was white rice, white sugar, mm. and fruit as much as you want to eat. Mm. Um, and it, it reversed diabetes. It probably caused nutrient deficiencies down the mm. road, but no more so than say a vegan diet. I mean, yes. it, it's it, it's going to also going to be nutrient deficient. So, well, um, yeah.
3: yeah. Well, on that note, mm. what what one thing I am finding? So I've been working. Working in private practice um, now for about six or seven months, so not Mm. a huge amount of time. But I always ask people about what their relationship with food is like. Mm. So every time I see them, I'm just like, "Are you enjoying your food? Like, Mm. what is that like?" And usually, when they come in to see me, they have a love-hate relationship with food. Mm. They go through phases of just toxic, negative. dieting, and Mm -hmm. then they go through phases of just loving food, splurging, overeating, but then having that associated guilt. Um, and so they really don't have a great relationship with food initially. Um, And then just as a side effect, every mm. single time they come in, they just seem a little bit brighter. Mm. And I'm always just like, so how how's your relationship with food going? How mm. How's the quality of your life going? Because right. that's a very important thing. Mm. And people are just like, I just feel really good. And if you weren't going to ask them any of those questions about quality of life or their relationship with food or even just um, how many times a day do you think about food? Because mm. that's another that's big another thing, big yeah. especially for women or people that have mm. done a lot of dieting. It's like every Every two seconds of the day. They're Mm. being consumed by numbers, calculations, what food choices they're going to make and so on and so Mm -hmm. forth. And all of those things just naturally get better and better and better. And I noticed that more so on people that are following low-carbohydrate approaches sure. um, than people who aren't. So, like, for me, that was a massive thing, um, mm-hmm. you know, improving my relationship with food after following a more low-carbohydrate diet. Yeah.
2: Um,
3: but it's something that I'm noticing in pretty much a 100% of my patients. Um, and if, for for example, if someone came back and goes and said to me, I hate this, I hate this food, doesn't taste good, then we would change the approach mm. because I think the patient's satisfaction and enjoyment is super important. And quality of life is so underestimated. I mean, I think when we look at the research, mm. we're always looking at, oh, did HbA1c improve? Did BMI improve? Did um, weight improve? But so many of these studies aren't asking, how is that person's quality of life? Is yeah. that getting better or worse? Yeah. Because I would prioritize that as being one of the most important. Yeah. And um, some people would even argue that quality of life is more important than, right. for example, their yeah. weight or yeah. HbA1c. Mm-hmm. And sometimes um, they have to outweigh, you know, do I want to be skinny and um, aesthetically pleasing mm. or do I want to have a really good quality of life and be a slightly chubbier person, Mm. but healthy. Do you know what I mean? And so, they weigh that out and usually at the end of the day, people say, I would rather have a good quality of life. Because for some people, getting to that ideal weight Mm -hmm. actually does require more strict approaches where we sort of move away from quality of life and, you know, Mm -hmm. eat till you're satiated, stop when you're full. You have Mm -hmm. to be a bit more strict um, with some people. And then they start to realize, oh, all this counting and all this um, fasting or whatever that they're forcing themselves to do mm. isn't working in terms of their happiness right. and in their relationship with food it's actually a really causing a of, negative balance. Yeah, that's
1: a really good way mm. of looking at it about I, I mean that's pretty much where I got to. I I I lost a lot of weight. I reversed my diabetes. I met all of my my metabolic goals. Mm. Um uh, but I'm still overweight and I I'm actually quite happy being overweight mm. because and one of the reasons is because uh, it gives me a- excess uh, adequate energy to be able to do stupid things like ride for three or four hours you know exactly that kind of thing so um, so for me uh, you know I've prioritized my life bit, uh, to the point where I wanted to get all I wanted to get metabolically healthy mm. but then I really don't care about being mm. bikini ready, exactly, exactly. Because <laughs> I look stupid in a bikini, so, you know. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but that's the thing. Like people, like we talk about um, eating disorders as being like this sort of like oh, we just think of anorexia and bulimia mm. and those types of things. But people who have spent twenty years trying to lose weight and going through that negative mm. calorie, like calorie deficit, yeah. they are on that eating disorder spectrum. Sure. And so, basically, even if they're
1: bodybuilders. I mean, there's exactly. still on an e- yeah, it's
3: exactly. eating disorder there. Yeah. And so, they'll usually, you know, come in when they're in their mid-40s or whatever, and they'll have gained so much weight, and they'll say, I want to be 60 kilos again, or whatever that is. But then they get to, say, 80 or whatever, and they realize that, okay – 80 is where my body is healthy and I'm happy and I can mm. eat what I want and not measure things. Mm. But then if I'm going to push down to get to 75 or get to 60, I have to start – that that sort of eating disorder sort of tendencies come back and they right. have to start weighing their food again, measuring mm-hmm. their food again, yeah. counting their calories and those types of things and that then becomes very negative for that mm. person. Yeah. So, for me, for example, if I really wanted, I could lose five kilos mm. but I choose not to because mm-hmm. then that starts to – like tap into my quality of life and reduce my quality of life. Yeah. And a lot of those eating disorder tendencies come back for me. So I start thinking about food all the time. Mm-hmm. I start feeling like I'm gonna lose control if I see something I like. Right. And all those feelings make me not happy, yeah. essentially. Yeah. And I'm so happy where I am, being able to not weigh and measure mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. And that's really where I as a dietitian want to help people to get. Yeah. So how healthy can you be, mm-hmm. but how happy? Can you be and how and fulfilled it prob- it is your life? Must be part of the
1: calculus. I mm. mean, the happiness must be part of the calculus. Mm. And for some people, happiness is more important than, mm. than a bikini body, and for yes. other people, it's the other way around. But it's but it's your own personal calculus. So exactly, you know, that's, that's really good. Yeah,
3: so. In our systematic review that we did, we actually included quality of life as an outcome. (laughs) None of the studies reported on quality of life. So, we were like, okay, if they reported on it, we're going to collect it and see what happened Mm -hmm. to their quality of life. No one reported on it. And we said, that's the problem. Hmm. That's a massive problem. Yeah. Because, um, you know, as we we're saying, you can't just assume their life is, uh, you know, rainbows and butterflies when their HbA1c is five. Right. Um, you would think that, but you can't assume. Mm. So, I hope future studies are looking at quality of life as well. And part of my PhD, I um, am planning to go over to um, Perth mm-hmm. where they have the Type 1 um, Telethon Family yes. Centre.
1: Beck Johnson, we interviewed her Be- on the podcast. Yep, yeah.
3: yep. Mm-hmm. And um, talk to some. Of their pi- patients yeah. um, who have type 1 diabetes doing a low carb diet. And just sit down with them and just chat about quality of life. Mm. So, has it improved with um, improved management nice. and has it, you know, just how's their relationship with food mm. um, and and things like that? Because there there is a group of people out there who believe that these really tightly controlled type 1 diabetics um, are very comparable with someone who's got anorexia, for example. No, cool. yeah, so, the okay. weighing and measuring of your food right. and wanting to have a glucose that's perfect all day, every day. Um, some people are saying, oh, that's an eating disorder. Order. but i i mean this is why i want to explore it yeah. because i want to say you know find out from these people that are actually doing that you know you know is your relationship mm. better or worse with yeah. food how many times a day are you thinking about it um and what sort of foods are you eating and you know but what was your relationship with food before you went low carb and had this tight control because yeah. from my understanding of people with type 1 diabetes Food is a nightmare for them, mm,
2: generally, yes, yeah.
3: particularly if they're eating a high carbohydrate diet, mm. because they've got to eat something, then their blood glucose goes crazy through the roof, um, or it goes too low depending on how much mm-hmm. insulin they've taken, um, and then two hours later they've got to try and eat again they and take more insulin with glucose to deal with the exactly. Insulin. They so they just got
1: to medicate for glucose. Yeah, yeah
3: <laughs> they're on this crazy like food insulin mm. roller coaster every single day, yeah. and their relationship with food is not good. Right, and that's something I've just observed, mm-hmm. and so I really, really want to test that as part of my PhD so that's sort of like a side project Mm. with that as well but there's all these things we need to consider and I think these are things dietitians are thinking about and health practitioners are thinking about and the more we talk about it and get those health practitioners in the conversation Mm. whether they're pro low carb or anti low carb I think we need um, everyone's thoughts and opinions um, on this topic so that we can really help to improve people's lives yeah because for you you're an amazing example this was a fantastic tool for for you to mm. help you improve your health and basically reverse type 2 diabetes. Sure. Yeah. So how uh, can ten we toes.
1: That's that's my, amazing. That's my biomarker. <laughs>
3: yeah. So how can we just like not give this tool to people right. when it's done amazing things for people like you and for mm. thousands of people out there? Yeah. We can't just pretend it doesn't exist. We mm. have to start working with it and I really hope that more dietitians get involved. Yeah.
1: Fascinating line of inquiry especially about the the quality of life. Um, I'm, I'm very excited to see what you do with your research dollars. Uh, Interesting. If you want to hear, uh, Jessica talk about this, she's going to be speaking at Keto Fest down under, which is happening in Canberra on the September the 16th at the National Press Club. And she's very excited. I'm so excited.
3: I'm doing a little happy dance
1: right now. We're both doing the happy (laughs) dance because we, I've just come back from Keto Fest in America and it was a a fantastic experience. And people, when we announced in America that we were doing a, a Canberra conference, I had like a, over a dozen people came up to me afterwards and said, "These are Americans saying, mm. you know, I, I wish you can give you gave me more time so that I could actually organise a trip to Australia to go to KetoFest. Fest." And I'm like, "You've just been to Keto Fest, <laughs> but you know, the, their experience was so great of the you know, at mm. going to it." So, um, so anyway, we're going to do uh, Keto Fest in Canberra on, the, on September the 16th, and uh, we're going to. Um, Put all of the profits that come from doing Keto Fest, we're going to um, uh, basically uh, donate to Sydney University where Jessica is from, uh, in the name of uh, um, the ketogenic community in Australia, and it will be um, earmarked for low carb research. Basically, Kieran Rooney's all, all the Kira, mm. Kieran Rooney stuff. So it may not be a lot of money. It depends on whether people donate to the cause. But yeah, um, yeah, yeah that so that so so we're really keen to support the science you're doing especially Mm. this idea of putting together protocols for dietitians yes. to be able to uh, safely and comfortably do low-carb diet.
3: Yeah, and we're so appreciative of that as well um, because it it costs so much to do research. Mm. Um, and, you know, Kieran Rooney at the University of Sydney has a bunch of really passionate PhD students at mm. the moment and we're all here at Low Carb Threadbow, but um, we're all trying to, you know, just improve the health of people out there living with these chronic conditions, Um, We're all looking at different areas of low-carbohydrate diets um, and I believe this is this is something people do like to get involved in mm. um, and you know they always want to know how they can help so it's really amazing to hear that you and Carl are doing that for us
1: yeah happy to but
3: the mm. other thing I want to quickly say about Keto Fest mm. in Canberra mm. is I think this is going to be an amazing opportunity because I know the people that listen to your show are pretty much like already you know low carb converted keto converted mm. so if you have someone in your life who is not low carb converted or keto converted who mm. may be interested or who may benefit From it. Bring them to Keto Fest in Canberra. Because this has to be like one of the best ways to just teach people who want to learn about this type of diet. They, you know, we love having people that are already converted, of course. Mm. But it's just about spreading this message, I think, a little bit wider now. So if there's any health practitioners listening, bring your dietitian. Come to
1: Canberra and bring your your dietitian. dietitian. Please
3: (laughs) bring your dietitian. (laughs) Um, So if there's any health practitioners listening Mm. that are just like, oh, I don't know about this, then that's that's totally fine. You can you can have an alternative opinion. That's fine. But just come to keto fest, mm. learn a little bit about the science, mm. and ask us questions, and we can have a healthy discussion about this. Um, because we're always going to have people with different opinions, and I think that's a good thing. I think it's particularly a great thing, yeah. with nutrition, mm. um, and so that's going to actually help this this area improve more. And that's how we're going to help improve more lives. Um, and you know, I'm hoping to bring as much of my family and friends as I can. <laughs> I'm sort of joking to Richard about organizing a busload of people. So if you want to come on my bus, let me know.
1: <laughs> It'll be the party bus.
3: The party bus. Yeah. yeah so I'm really excited and, and thank you to you guys for organizing that.
1: Well, thank you very much, Jessica. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, uh, we're looking forward to hearing from you at Keto Fest. That'll be recorded. It'll be online afterwards. So uh, thank you very much.
3: Amazing. I can't wait. Heard you
0: say you'll do for little
1: yeah, thanks, Jess. That was awesome. Uh, that was a great interview. We're going to actually hear Jessica speak at Keto Fest Down Under on Sunday, September the 16th at the National yeah. Press Club in Canberra.
0: Yes, yes, yes. And you'll be there.
1: Well, if we if, we sell, enough t- if we sell enough tickets, you'll be there.
0: Yeah, my first time <laughs> to Canberra. Yeah. Nice. And uh, I'm feeling a little peckish. You? Yeah, I'm a little bit hungry.
1: What? I think All it's right time then. for some recipes. Recepies. Recepies.
0: Recipe is. What you got, Carl? Well, I told you I was going to make picanha and mm-hmm.
1: I did. Yeah. And you left me with a massive cliffhanger. So, what was the result?
0: Well, okay. So, the result is that um, when I fired up my Traeger grill, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when I was putting it together, I was noticing, hey, there's no direct heat here. It's all indirect heat. Right. Right. Mm. Which is kind of what you need if you have a smoker. Yeah. And on the other side, on the high side, you're basically baking. You know, right. at 450 sure. degrees and you you and i know that the milliard reaction is really important when you have a steak mm-hmm. you know it, it you want to sear on that steak yeah you want it crispy Whether on the
1: outside and go caramelized
0: exactly mm-hmm. and y- you don't get that from an oven when you bake so mm-hmm. unless you know you're going to really bake it at low and low temperatures over long periods of time then it happens but mm-hmm. So, I decided that I was going to do this uh, picanha in the oven and broil it. Okay. Mixed results. Mm -hmm. So, first of all, what is picanha? Picanha is a rump cap. If you've ever been to a churrascaria like Fogo de Chao or Texas de Brazil, Mm -hmm. you, you probably remember what they call top sirloin. Sure. Yeah. So, it's usually curved around on a skewer and there's a, Nice fat cap around the outside, so it's kind of like a half moon shape. Yeah. And uh, it's also known as the rump cap. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's skewered, salted, and grilled over an intense heat, just enough to cook the outside layer, and then you cut off the outside layer, which is, you know, nice on the outside, and by the time you get inside, it's medium rare, maybe Mm. even rare. Yeah. And then you, so you cut it thin, you resalt it, you re-grill, and you repeat. Hmm. So, you probably have to hunt around for a butcher who gets it. I had to uh, send my butcher to a Wikipedia page. So, the way they do it at a Churrascaria is over a charcoal flame. Right. right? They have really hot coals and they rotate it over this uh, fire. Mm -hmm. And that's really good. But if you're like me and most other people, you know, if you don't have a charcoal grill, that can be challenging. Yeah. So... What I did is I put it under the broiler, and I got some rock salt Mm -hmm. and put that over it. And and when I say rock salt, I mean rock salt, like really big grains of salt, not just flakes. Big old crystals, yeah. Yeah, big crystals. So um, the first time it goes under the broiler, it's only going to be a few minutes, and then that outer layer is going to be cooked, and you want to turn it over after a few minutes and do the outside layer. But then here's the thing. Take it off the pan. Move it to another place to rest. And also, I wouldn't expect that you'll be able to find the, the steaks, you know, the skewers that will hold that meat on. Right. Um, it's, it's really hard to find. And if you just have these little thin barbecue skewers that you get, you know, in the store or whatever around here in the States, it's just going to slide right off. Mm. So you may want to forego the skewers altogether and just use some tongs and a knife to cut the outside layer. Now the first time you do that, the the outside layer is perfect. You know, it's it's perfect. But if you put it back in, resalt it and rebroil it, you really got to watch the temperature because it isn't going to take long before that thing turns to gray.
1: Right. Yeah, we. great meat's not good, no bueno.
0: No, no, it's not. It's tough and it's nasty and it's better to err on the side of rare than on the side of medium or even well done. Mm -hmm. So I made that mistake. So the first round was great. Some people loved it. Some people said, oh, it's too rare for me. Put it Mm -hmm. back in. (laughs) Once you put it back in, you really just have to be careful because it's already hot now and it's going to cook through in no time. So um, I'm going to try this again this week, but this time I'm just going to pan sear. Right. I'm just going to put the rock salt on it. I'm going to put it in cast iron. I'm just going to sear it on each side for two minutes. Get that nice crisp crust that doesn't affect the rest of it as much and uh, try it that way. Nice. And I'll let you know what happens. Yeah,
1: yeah. look forward to hearing about that.
0: But it is the most delicious steak. The thing is with picanha is when you cut it, you want to cut it against the grain right. into strips that are about two inches wide and then you sort of fold it over with a cap, fat cap on the outside and then skewer it, cover it with salt, cook it. Meat, salt, heat, Easy. yum. <laughs> yeah.
1: We actually went to a Churiscaria in Threadbo and uh, mm-hmm. I, ate, I ate like, I ate over a kilogram of meat and yeah. i normally don't eat a lot of protein but you know i had about 300 grams of protein i think in a kilo of meat probably wow and it was and i tell you what i experienced gout in all of my all of my joints especially my big toe um for and for like 3 days after that event and it's just the meat wow. it's just that you know i was dealing with so many purines from that from that meat um, and gout, you know, if you've ever had gout, you don't make jokes about it because it is not yeah. fun at all. But you know that that's the thing. It's uh, my body's not used to dealing with a lot of protein, and yeah. uh, you know you can do wow. you can do bursts of uh, having you know three hundred grams of protein in a day if you if you want to, and if your body can handle um, the sudden influx of protein. But it's not something you want to do every day. Mm. That's for sure.
0: Well, was it worth it? Oh,
1: yeah. <laughs> it was totally <laughs> worth it. <laughs> it was totally worth it. And the skiing the next day was just outstanding. And I had oh, good. skiing in a meat coma <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with gout. It was totally worth it. <laughs> Awesome, bring it on.
0: All uh, right, man, that's my recipe. What do you yeah. got?
1: So I've got one. This is a simple one. I'm kind of punting because I'm, I'm working so hard on Keto Fest Down Under, so I didn't have a lot of time to cook. Next week I'm actually going to do a, a day with uh, Chef Darren Tetley from the the, pre- the National Press Club, and uh, we're, we're just going to have a play in the kitchen, so we're going to try some experiments. Sounds good. We're doing some interesting stuff with duck fat. So anyway that's all I'm going to say. Ooh. But today I'm actually going to give you a recipe that I came up with and uh this is funny. Uh, have you ever had baby bells that they're, they're like baby a,
0: bell mushrooms?
1: No, baby bell cheese. It's like a little Oh, oh, like oh a little, yeah, yeah. Sure. little Edam cheese in a wax uh, uh wrapper and yeah, um, yeah. and so Baby bells in Australia at Costco lately have been shipping – you buy them in a bag of baby bells, like maybe 20 baby bells, and in the bags these days they've been shipping these little plastic dishes. And I thought, oh, that's Hmm. very interesting. And I learned that I've been eating baby bells all wrong. These plastic dishes are for microwaving baby bells, and you basically – it about you you unwrap the baby bell from the from, it's like an Edem cheese and you uh, yeah. and you unwrap it from its wax and you put it in a little plastic container you put it in a microwave for 30 seconds and what comes out is like fondue it's just incredible it's like nice elevating baby bells to the next level but that's not my recipe wow, I love that's it. not my recipe that's just my inspiration <laughs> okay. so here's uh-huh. my here's my recipe get a ramekin a ramekin is a little uh, ceramic dish. Uh, it's um, uh, you know you normally have like a little souffle in it or a little you know, yeah berries and cream in it. Get two ramekins and put in the bottom of the ramekin about five grams worth of cheese. I use a cheddar um, and I just use a slice of cheese. What you're going to do is you're going to nuke these. You're going to put them in the microwave for a minute. These two ramekins uh, and what they're going to do is they're going to cook the fats in the cheese, it's going to bubble up like it'll be like the surface of the moon with all these pockmarks on it. Mm. And eventually you'll think it's gone too far. You'll think the cheese has gone too far and started to dry out and burn, but it gets a really nice um, uh, colour to it, a lovely golden colour. When the ramekin comes out, the cheese is going to be stuck to the bottom of the ramekin, and you'll, you'll be thinking, oh, what an absolute disaster. Grab a mm. teaspoon, prise the corner of that cheese up, and you'll find it pops off into a little disc. Uh, put it on a rack just to cool down for a little bit, and you have a lovely little cheese crisp um, that you can cover with Vegemite. You can put some sour cream, put some guacamole on it. You can so you, it's basically a little cheese crisp cooked in a ramekin that's in great. about a minute in the microwave.
0: I've done the same with provolone slices because mm. they make nice crackers. You put a provolone slice in the microwave for about a minute, minute and a half,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and that's exactly what happens. It turns into this crispy little cracker.
1: Nice. Well, anyway, there's yeah. a there's a quick little uh, trick. You know, if, if somebody's coming over and you need to make some crackers and you've got some lovely dip, there you go. Yeah. You can make cheese crisps very quickly in the microwave just
0: with a couple of ramekins. Awesome. Well, wow, that was a great show, Richard. Yeah. Jam-packed, full of nutritional value. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Of course, if you have anything you want to tell us, something we've said wrong, something that you don't agree with, some more research you found to support or refute, anything that we've said, send it by email to dudes at 2ketodudes.com or post it on our website.
0: And you can follow us on Twitter, Twitch, YouTube, and Instagram at 2ketodudes. Make sure to use the hashtag 2ketodudes. And of course, if you want to join the free ketogenic forum, it's forum.2keto.com.
1: And you can also have a look around the ketogenic forums without needing to create an account by starting with success2
0: And if useless swag is your fancy, you know, T-shirts, coffee mugs, and other junk with witty keto sayings on them, head over to gear2
1: And if you want a shot at getting some of that swag for free, join the 2 Keto Dudes Fan Club. You'll be eligible to win something in every show. Go to fanclub2
0: And if you feel like supporting our forums and all the podcasts we produce think about making a monthly pledge on our Patreon page at patreon2
1: You can also see all of our podcasts and other videos on YouTube at youtube2
0: And if you haven't already, go leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That's how new people get to know about what we do. 2 Keto Dudes is brought to you by 2 Keto LLC, who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. Well, Richard, keep calm, keto on, and fast when you can.
1: Yeah, car. Keep calm, keto on, and keto fest in Australia at least once a year.
0: <laughs> nah. All right, and we'll see you next time on Two Keto Dudes.